I want to begin our time this morning just by once again going to the Lord in prayer and and asking Him to to attend to our time as we begin. Father, we are grateful for our opportunity to once again be together to pray, to sing, to fellowship together. But most of all, Lord, we want to be under the teaching of Your Word. We love Your Word. We know that there is no other thing that is so solidifying for our life and for godliness. There is nothing else that can sanctify us other than Your Word. So Lord, help us this morning receive what You would have for us. Allow us to be motivated to greater love and good deeds, to desire to honor Your name in all that we do and all that we say, who we are. Help us to battle against the the flesh, to battle against sin that so easily is right there at the door, always seeking its way. Help us to war against that every moment of every day, that You would be glorified in it and that You would be honored by our life, that others would see the gospel being lived out in us that would might cause them to ask questions from us as to what gives us hope in such a hopeless world. So help that in our hearts this morning, Lord. Massage that into our lives this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want us to take our Bibles this morning as we begin our time in the Word of God and turn to the Gospel of Luke. We have begun a a study through the Gospel of Luke. We started it a few weeks ago, and as you know, I will be saying it a lot. Please open to the Gospel of Luke. And we are there this morning. We are continuing where we left off last Lord's Day. God Himself is pronouncing a coming miracle, something that has not happened for more than 400 years in the history of the nation of Israel. There is a miracle that is about to happen, and God is the one who is announcing it. And I want to read for us once again, beginning in verse 5. And I won't read as far as we did last time. Last time I believe we read all the way down to 38, but I want to read through verse 23 this morning, just to kind of set our minds back in the context of where we were last Lord's Day. Luke writes for us as a faithful historian, giving us the facts, just what a historian does. He lays out the facts. He just lays them out as they are. He says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abiah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. And they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. It came about while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division. According to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering, And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. And Zacharias was troubled when he saw him, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John." 
and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, yet while in his mother's womb. And he will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. And it is he who will go go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, Well, how shall I know this for certain? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which shall be fulfilled in their proper time. The people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at this delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. They realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained moot. And it came about when these days of his priestly service were ended that he went back home. This is an amazing event. This is something that has not taken place, like I said, in over 400 years. Zacharias and Elizabeth's lives were about to be changed forever. They had been faithful to God their whole lives ever since they were a married couple. They had grown up under the tutelage of their families, and now they're both together as husband and wife, both of the priestly line, both in the Aaronic line, whereby Zacharias is a priest. Elizabeth was born into a priestly home. She's even named after the wife of Aaron, whose name, wife's name was Elizabeth. They believed God, and God had counted it unto them as righteousness, as we are told in the first few verses, that they were righteous in the sight of God. And so they were about to be changed in a massive way. Zacharias had prayed. He had prayed for his family continually. He had prayed, I am sure, for the barrenness of his wife, that she might have a child. But he knew that they were advanced in years. Verse 7 tells us that with clarity. They were old folks now. They were of that kind of group. They believed that God had counted it unto them as righteousness. And yet they were still without child. He longed for a child. He also desired that God would bring the promised Messiah to the people that God would bring upon the nation of Israel the salvation that He had promised so long ago in the prophets. And now the day was upon Him. Of course, He didn't know it at the time. He didn't know it when He went to the temple to do His regular duty. But it was upon Him. God's voice was about to be heard. The silence of more than 400 years was about to be broken by God through the voice of an angel. Zacharias is the one who is to receive the message. 
The message is fairly simple. It's certainly straightforward. The message is going to be to Zacharias that you're going to have a son. Shock and awe would have struck his mind. Surely, as an old man, certainly his wife was barren. How in the world am I going to have a son? A miracle was about to take place. His once barren wife was going to become pregnant, and in the natural course and running of time, she would give birth to a son. There would be much rejoicing, the text says. There would be great joy, and Zacharias is commanded to name him John. Now, that's where we've kind of been in our study up to that point. And as I was reading this morning, just those first 23 verses, you may have noticed as I was reading, there was a a bit of a shift in the narrative. There was a shift in the in the way Luke was telling what was going on. And it was a, a shift from what was going on with Zacharias to a more detailed reality as to who John would be. And so in verses 15 to 17, there is this, this shift going on to speak about the character and the practice of this new son. The character and the practice of this new son would all be under the overarching character quality that describes him before God. The text says that he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. The word great is a word we're familiar with. It's the word mega or megas. Um, In the sight of God, there would be No one born through the natural means of humanity greater than John. No one prior to John, no one after John, who would be born into humanity as humanity himself. No one would be greater than John. Now, I want us to think for a moment just about the idea of greatness, because greatness is something that... Many seem to be talking about in our day. There's a whole lot going on in our world whereby people think things are great or things aren't great, whatever that may mean. In fact, we even use the acronym in today's vernacular, GOAT, G-O-A-T. Right? GOAT describes someone as being the very best in some kind of worldly activity or some kind of worldly task. We know it well here in New England. Because there is a person who throws footballs for a living, who has a tremendous success on the field, and he is being described as the GOAT. He is the greatest of all time. Right? Of course, he's not up here anymore. He's down in Florida with those reprobates. <laughs> I said that because there's friends from Florida here this morning. <clears throat> they know exactly what I'm talking about. <clears throat> We know it is the greatest of all time, at least UTTP up to this time point, right? Or ACT, according to time, he is the best of all time, at least up to this point. It's an interesting title, to say the least, to call someone the GOAT. And So to be considered great in this world, you have to have done something that the world sees as significant. Or you have to have a person 
born into a family that by which the world sees as some kind of dignity, some kind of significant dignity in the world, that they would be called great. People described as great in our nation and world have their names on buildings, names over libraries, names over schools. They are inventors of world-changing items and come up with all kinds of bizarre ideologies. In fact, some who have developed the terminology CRT or critical race theory, even in our world, would be considered great. They are people who are considered as intellectually astute in some kind of field or expertise in which they work. They're overcomers in some kind of adversity. Those are great people in our world, at least as they're labeled, or even some on, a, on an even more trivial level in our world. You can be great by just being someone who acts on TV or in some kind of movie. You're great. Or maybe even you have found some way to garner a social media following and you get all kinds of enthusiastic thumbs up on that one website. And so you think you're pretty great. In the eyes of other people, you're great. That's how the world defines greatness. In fact, years ago, Muhammad Ali proclaimed in his own words, I am the greatest. I am the greatest. Why? Because he knocked out the then, up to that point, best heavyweight boxer of the day. So for mankind, for our world, having the label great attached to your life might be helpful in some earthly way, but what man finds great, God does not. God does not. God's definition of what is great is different than what the world thinks is great. And the only way that you and I can know what is great in the eyes of God is to see what He calls great. And in that category, John is listed. John is listed in the category of one of those and the only one of those in which God calls great. The son of Zacharias and Elizabeth. This is what the angel said to Zacharias. Your son, This one whom your wife will have that you know she's barren and you are old and those faculties of life make no sense that that would happen with you. It's going to happen, Zacharias, and he will be great in the sight of the Lord. This was the angel's words. This was a divine messenger. A divine messenger. They... Divine messengers, angels, those who came from the presence of God only do what they've been told to do. They only say what they have been told to say. They always obey what they have been told to do to the letter. They never deviate from that. What God wants them to do, they do. And this angel, we know him to be Gabriel, the one who is in the presence of God himself, he says in verse 19. I stand in the presence of God... I was dispatched, I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. That angel himself is saying all that God wants Zacharias to hear. And therefore God is describing who John is and who he will be on earth. 
And he says that he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Now, if you're going to have the title of greatness attached to your name, the only time it matters is if the one attaching it to you is God. That's the only time it matters. Anytime someone else says you're great, anytime that's described of you, you're really not great. It's only if God attaches that to you, and and I have some news for us here in case we have aspirations of that. None of us here will have the name attached to us that is attached to John. John was great in the sight of the Lord. None of us will have that title. Because the Bible says that no one after him and no one before him. There's no one as great as John doesn't matter what the world says. It doesn't matter what the world sees you as great or not. The only thing that matters is what God says. And that can be said with definitiveness about John because God's description of John is not what the world sees as greatness. You want to know what God considers as greatness? Here, Here's what God considers as greatness. John will not play on a professional sports team. John will not have his name emblazoned across buildings that have been dedicated to him. You will not go throughout ancient Israel and find anything with John's name emblazoned over the top or some ancient artifact that says here was John the Great. He will not have a social media account where people praise him and he praises himself for his own life. No, John will simply be born into a normal, nondescript family. He will not be praised for his intellectual achievements. His home will not be the most prominent one in the neighborhood. And he will not be on the cutting edge of daily fashion or food. No, he will just grow up in the hills, mostly away from the hubbub of all the masses of people. And he will actually seem to humanity to be one weird dude. He will wear camel hair and eat locusts and honey. We'll see that as time goes on. In our day, no one would look at John and say, now that's a great man. No one. In fact, he will grow up to be hated. And in the end, he will have his head severed from his body. Only to be brought on a platter to a woman who coaxed her daughter into having it brought to her in light of the fact of wanting to please Herod himself because she hated him. She hated John. But in the eyes of God, he will be the goat. He will be the greatest of all time. Just a side note, by the way. I read through it last time, but you notice over in verse 32... Beginning in verse 26, Luke begins to tell us about the 
foretelling of the birth of Jesus Christ, who also was a miracle birth. Verse 31 says, He behold to Mary, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus, and he will be great. You notice that? And he will be great. There's, there's one thing missing from the phrase. It says of John, he will be great in the sight of the Lord. It doesn't say that about Jesus. It simply says, he will be great. It doesn't say, he will be great in the sight of the Lord. You ever ask yourself, why? Why is that? Why doesn't it say that of Jesus? I mean, after all, Jesus certainly is greater than John. It's true. Jesus doesn't need that description. Why? Because Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Jesus is simply great in and of Himself. In other words, there is nothing that makes Him great. God is making John great, but nothing makes Jesus great. Jesus simply is great. That's what He is. That's different for John. John has been created by God. He has been created by God for a specific task, and he himself will say of Jesus, I must decrease, he must increase. John will say, don't look at me, look to Jesus. Why? You may say about me maybe good things, but those are meaningless. The only good things to say are about Jesus. Jesus is inherently great. John is great in the sight of the Lord. Why? Why is John great in the sight of the Lord? Well, the answer is given to us in the rest of this verses 15 through 17. And I, I just want to spend the rest of our time there this morning because it describes his character and his practice. This is before he's born. This is what the angel declares about what John will be, both in his character and in his practice. You notice, first of all, that it says he will drink no wine or liquor. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor. Now, wine was a very important commodity in the ancient Near East. But when we think of wine, we cannot think of wine like we think of wine in our modern day. In fact, the word liquor here the second word is more descriptive, really, of what we might think of today as wine. In the Old Testament, that was known as strong drink. Strong drink. What was known as wine back in those days was what we might call basic grape juice. Basic grape juice. There was no refrigeration during the time, that time, and so juice from the vine, grape juice, would, without some kind of inhibitor to fermentation, it would quickly become fermented. And of course, if you drank that, surely you would become intoxicated. You would become inebriated. You would become someone whose faculties of, of thought and faculties of caring about yourself would be in some ways inhibited or at least affected at some level. We even have laws against intoxication in our country, particularly when you're operating machinery that might hurt other people like a car. 
So if you had that kind of thing, you would be intoxicated. But, but that kind of wine was, was called strong drink or, or liquor, as it says here. Strong drink was undiluted fermented grape juice. Undiluted fermented grape juice. So it, was, it would have been highly intoxicating. Wine, however, was mostly diluted grape juice. Still had some, some factors in there of fermentation, but it was highly diluted. And you, you had simple juice before fermentation. So when the grapes were squeezed, you had grape juice, and over time it would become more and more and more alcoholic. More and more fermentation would take place. Well, in order to tamp that down, they would dilute that grape juice with water to inhibit the fermentation. They would add water, and that served two purposes in ancient times. Water was a very, could be very toxic because of the bacteria in the water, and so two purposes served by adding water to the fermentation. One, it would break down or dilute the fermentation in the alcoholic process, so the alcoholic content would be rendered less, and sometimes if you added enough water, it would be almost fully non-intoxicating. And then the fermentation of the juice helped to purify the water from the natural bacteria that were in the water. So your water would have been better to drink if you had a diluted grape juice. You could not, you could serve two purposes. One would be non-intoxicating and one would be helpful because you were drinking water that was not going to hurt you. In fact, now back in Numbers chapter 6, it talks about someone, you notice, number one, he would, he was, to drink no wine or liquor. Now in Numbers chapter 6, it mentions, it mentions a Nazarite vow. A Nazarite vow. Notice what it says. Nazarite, the word Nazarite just means separation. So it's a, a vow of separation. I'll just read this to you. You don't have to turn there. You can write it down. I'm going to read Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. The Lord spoke to Moses. And he said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink and shall, and shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes fresh or dried. And all the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. He shall let the locks of his hair of his head grow long. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body. Not even for his father or for his mother, for brother or sister, if they die, shall he make himself unclean because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. Now that describes the Nazarite vow. Taking a vow of separation, it wasn't necessarily your whole life. It was a, a time of, to set yourself apart unto the Lord to have this specific uh, uh, separation from the normal aspects of life. And one of those aspects of life was this idea of everything from the grapevine, also the cutting of the hair, and also you weren't to be around 
anything that had died. And I believe this is what Gabriel, at least in the, in the uh, smallest of way, or maybe even the most uh, influential way in society, was talking about when it came to John. He would be a man who would be set apart by such an outward self-discipline that his life would be like that of someone in the process of a Nazarite vow. He would be someone dedicated unto God in every kind of way. And I think that's why you see him described later as someone who only eats locusts and honey. He didn't dress like everybody else. He didn't eat what everybody else said. He was great unto the Lord. He was set apart unto the Lord. He didn't drink what they drank. He didn't eat what they ate. He didn't dress like they dressed. Is it any wonder that someone might have come along and said, that is one weird dude. John is an odd ball. So the Nazarite vow was taken for a time But the Bible doesn't tell us how long that time was. But during that separation, as number six says it, the person was to follow those mandates. They were to follow those three specific mandates. No drinking of any kind of alcohol, no cutting of the hair, no being around the dead person. But for John, this was John's entire life. This is what John was set aside to be for life from birth from birth he was to be prepared for this special service to god through these spiritual disciplines that had been set aside for him he would never take wine or strong drink it doesn't tell us he wouldn't cut his hair but we can only surmise that from numbers chapter 6 that this was the nazarite vow a Nazarite-like vow, if you will, set aside by God. And all of this would bear a powerful testimony. Testimony to the world around him, to others, about who he was, and specifically about what he had to say. It's interesting, even in our day, when you think about these things, that a person's life, who they are and their life, speaks loudly Not so much by what he does, but more so by what he does not do. That speaks loudly about someone's life. They don't engage in that. The rest of the world is doing that, but they're not doing that. That speaks loudly in our day and age. Gabriel says that's what John would be like. And then secondly, he says in verse 15, notice, And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. So John was not only to be a man outwardly devoted to God through a life of separation, but on the inside, he would be empowered by God from the womb. There's all kinds of theological implications just in that reality here in this text, and I don't want to go into all of them, but... But we could certainly say that if you're filled from, with the Holy Spirit from the womb, you're elect of God. Right? No one who is not elect, who doesn't know Jesus Christ, will never have the Holy Spirit upon them or in them. Only the elect. So John was elect of God, and thereby we know that he was a redeemed person who would preach for God. He would have the Holy Spirit indwelling him. That's not a strange concept for us. 
right? Being filled with the Holy Spirit. Every believer, every Christian, everyone who has ever believed upon Jesus Christ unto salvation has the Holy Spirit indwelling them. The reality of being filled with the Holy Spirit simply means that John would be under the motivating control and power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, he would be spirit-controlled. Spirit-controlled. You say, how? Just like you and I are. How would he be spirit-controlled? Is he a robot? No. All who have believed unto salvation, the will of the Spirit, how do we know the will of the Spirit? Primarily expressed through the Word of God. That's how we know what God's will is. All of that would direct his life. John would be taught the Word of God. He would know the Word of God. He would speak the Word of God. He would obey the Word of God. God the Spirit would be in control of His life even from His mother's womb. Now some have tried to say here, and tried to, some commentators have tried to say, while yet in His mother's womb, carries the implication that we cannot say that even children as young as newborns cannot be saved. I don't know that we can draw that conclusion there, because... You have to believe. Something needs to be believed, which means there has to be some kind of rational thinking, which means you have to understand who Jesus Christ is and believe upon Jesus Christ unto salvation. I'm not sure an infant has that ability yet. Right? Because in order to believe, you have to be able to reject. And so people who reject God do not believe God. I'm not sure we can go there. But I just wanted to, to say that to us because some have, you may pick up a commentary and read and someone will say, see, that proves that infants themselves, even as much as newborns, can be saved. I believe that certainly God can save children. It's just a matter of when God saves them, they will understand the gospel. Now, all of that tells us a few things about this moment that Gabriel has announced. One is that John's filling was the fulfillment of prophecy. John's fulfillment was that of prophecy, right? It was prophecy of old. It was foretold that there would be one come. Isaiah even said that. John says that in John chapter 1, that I am not Elijah. I'm the one who's coming before as the prophet Isaiah has foretold. So John is the fulfillment of prophecy. And number two, it's miraculous. This isn't something science can figure out and give us an answer for. This is miraculous because normally those who are saved receive the Spirit upon salvation in time. Right? When we believe. And yet here is John receiving it yet while in his mother's womb. And also, just as an implication, thirdly, it tells us that life begins at conception, doesn't it? Life begins at conception. John is alive while still in his mother's womb. He's not just a ball of cells. John is alive. John was elect. No other way that he would be great in the sight of God unless God had elected him. He was chosen vessel of God for his work. And that work would only be accomplished by means of the Holy Spirit in him. 
So there are things happening here and truths being revealed to us here that have never been seen before. Have never happened before. This is all new. The Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity who has the task of working divine power in the lives of God's people is here and He's here to save. He's here to teach. He's here to sanctify and He's using them. It's His work in the life of John while He's still in His mother's womb. So He will be great. He'll be separated from the world's ways and He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. So what's He going to do? What's John going to do when he arrives? Well, first, verse 16 says, he will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. This is his primary task. This is John's primary task. To turn back many who have been disobedient. Or turn back, interesting word, estrephe in the original language. The idea of that that word, the understanding of that word, is that whatever is turned back is completely changed. They're completely different. They've gone a whole other direction. We, we might even use the word in our own vernacular, the word converted. Something is converted. It is changed. It is totally converted. In other words, under the God-given and Spirit-empowered ministry of John, there was going to be many who would be completely changed spiritually. It would not be the same. He was going to come preaching a message of change. Not a message of believe and be the same. Not a message of just go about your own life but attach God to it. No, that was not John's message. It was a change. A change of direction. A change of what you believe. A change of your love for self to a love for God. That was John's message. He would turn back Israel to the Lord their God, implying that they had left the Lord their God. They had turned their back on God. God, out of His grace, was sending this miracle son, Zacharias and Elizabeth, who would come and preach a message that would turn back many of the sons of Israel. You notice there isn't any universalism there. You notice that God didn't tell us and He will turn back every person in Israel to the Lord their God? He just says many. We don't know how many that is. We don't know what size that group is, but it isn't universal. It isn't everybody. It's only those whom God has chosen, that God is drawing to Himself, that John's message hits, that the heart receives, and they turn to God. It's exactly what the Gospel does. John is preaching the gospel. Complete change. Turn back. Turn back to your God. Turn back to the Creator. It sounds like the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 17. He says, listen, I see you are a a, a religious people. You worship all of these gods, and you even have one here, a statue, a memorial to an unknown God. Well, let me tell you about that God, because He has appointed a day of judgment, and all men will answer to that God. So turn to Him. Turn away from your disobedience back. God, turn away from your apostasy. 
Turn your back on your own rebellion. Turn your back on your own self-righteousness. Turn to God. In fact, turn over for a moment just to verse 76. Look at what Zechariah says about his son as he prophesies the Word of God. As God, the Spirit is upon him and he is now speaking God's Word. He is speaking revelation. And he's saying this to his son, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give His people the knowledge of salvation. How? By the forgiveness of their sins. John was going to go and preach the gospel. Gabriel came and said, Zacharias, you're going to have a son, and your son is going to be a gospel preacher. He's going to preach the gospel to the people of Israel. You've been praying for salvation, Zacharias. You've been praying for your wife. You have been praying for your people. And in one fell swoop, God in one moment answers his prayer miraculously. Not only will you have a child, but this child will be one who will turn back evil. He will bring the message of salvation to your people. John would be a prophet of God. Born into a home of priests. In fact, as a son of a priest, he would be technically a priest. He was born to be a prophet as a priest who would come announcing the coming of the King of glory. Right there in John, you have the prophet, the priest, and the message of a king. What was John going to do? He was going to give the people the knowledge of salvation. How? How and why? Why was that going to happen? Verse 17 tells us. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous. Why? So as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. The angel Gabriel tells Zacharias that John would be the fulfillment of prophecy. He was the fulfillment of what God had promised, not simply in the words of Isaiah, but also in the prophet Malachi. We are studying Malachi in the evening, and in chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, it says this, just listen. Behold... I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. That's the last verses of Malachi. I'm going to send Elijah and he's going to come and he's going to turn the hearts of the people back to God. Lest I come and I, and I bring a curse of judgment upon it all. And remember that Elijah stood against the prophets of Baal 
in Israel. Elijah was the prophet who stood for Israel in the day, stood for God and proclaimed the righteousness of God. He stood against those 450 false prophets as God intervened and, and rained down fire from heaven and consumed them along with all of the water that he had poured upon the sacrifice. Now John, John was to come with that same spirit and power. He was to be a forerunner before him, it says. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him. The him there in that verse is Jesus Christ. He would come before Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, the Lord of verse 16, right? For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will turn back Israel to the Lord. That's Jesus Christ. Clearly, Jesus is God. And here he is identified as the Lord God. The Lord God. And it would be the task of John to go before him and point all of us to the identity of the Savior of the world. Now, I want you to stick with me here because I need to say some things that might sound a bit confusing if we're not careful. Verse 17 says that he will go as a forerunner before him in the power, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn back the hearts of the fathers back to the children. He will go in the power of Elijah. Now, if you were a Jew... You were taught that before the Messiah came to set up his kingdom, Elijah would have to come. Right? Malachi's prophecy. Elijah must come. Elijah would come and pronounce. And so if you were a Jew, you you believed that. You you heard the prophecy of Malachi. In fact, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 will be there tonight. But it says this, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. Malachi 3, verse 1. So before the Lord would come, there would first come His messenger. And so the question is, who is that? And chapter 4 says in Malachi, Behold, I will send the prophet Elijah before you. So before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, before the Lord comes in His great glory... I'm going to send Elijah. So the test question is, is John Elijah? Is John Elijah? Malachi says Elijah would come before the coming of the Savior. He said the Lord would have a forerunner. It would be Elijah. But John's Gospel, I read it this morning... John chapter 1, verse 21, right? They sent people to John to say, who are you? Are you the Christ? I'm not the Christ. Well, if you're not the Christ, are you Elijah? What does John say? I'm not Elijah. You confused yet? How are we to understand all this? Well, I think we get some clarity to this from Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 11. Go to Matthew chapter 11 with me. Jesus Himself ministering 
Right? It came about, verse 1 of chapter 11, Matthew, when Jesus had finished giving instructions to the 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John in prison heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? John knows he has a task. He knows he's to point the Messiah. Now he's, he's wanting to clarify. Are you the, the one that I need to clarify this all about? And Jesus answered and said, Go and report to John what you see and what you hear. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. Now, Jesus knew, John knew the Old Testament. Had he been filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb, Jesus had orchestrated pre-incarnate Christ, had orchestrated all of this going on with the wisdom of the Father. He knew exactly who John was. John knew exactly who Jesus would be and what Jesus would do because the Old Testament declares all of those things, that he would give sight to the blind, that, 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 that those who were sick would be cleansed, that deaf would hear, the dead would be raised up, the poor would have the gospel preached. He knew all that. And so Jesus says, listen, go tell him exactly what you see and what you've heard. Go tell him what I've done. He'll know exactly that. And verse 7 says, as they were going away, Jesus began to speak to the multitude about John. And he says, listen, what did you go out into the wilderness to look at? Did you go out to see a reed shaken by the wind? No, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing, they're in king's palaces. Listen, you didn't go out to see a king out there. So why did you go out? Did you go out to see a prophet? He said, yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written. Now, Jesus is saying, okay, you want confirmation? Here it is. This is what was prophesied before. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Verse 10, right? Guess where he got that from? Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Jesus says that's the fulfillment of that prophecy. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Jesus says, you want a fulfillment of Malachi? John's the fulfillment of of Malachi. In other words, go tell John my works will clarify exactly who I am. And then Jesus begins to address the crowd and he says what I just read. And there's a whole lot going on there. But I want to highlight the words of verses 14 and 15 that I didn't read. Notice from verse 12, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violence of men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you care to accept it, he himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus says, if you accept it. 
If you accept what? If you accept John's message. If you accept his message. John's message. What was his message? You need to repent of your sins. You need to turn to God. You need to believe in the coming Christ. You need to believe in the Messiah. In other words, if you accept, Jesus is saying, if you accept what He is saying, then you also accept me as Messiah. And if you accept me as the Messiah, as what John was saying, then John will have fulfilled the Elijah prophecy. Tells us at least one thing that the prophecy of Malachi was, in one sense, figurative. Figurative. In other words, it wasn't speaking of an actual resurrection and an actual return of the real Elijah, but one who would come, as it says in Luke's gospel, in the power and spirit of Elijah. so Gabriel says there's coming one in the spirit and power of Elijah. In other words, he's Elijah-like. He, he's the Elijah that Malachi promised, at least in a figurative way. Jesus even says if you believe him, then he's the Elijah fulfillment. He's coming to announce the arrival of the Savior. Jesus says in Matthew 11, if you believe the message, if you believe the gospel, then he will fulfill that Elijah prophecy. He'll be like Elijah the prophet. Now, I believe there's another actual Elijah going to re-return because Jesus, because Malachi prophesies that, I think, in a realistic sense, not just a figurative sense. And I think possibly that might happen in Revelation chapter 11. Maybe he's one of the two witnesses that are brought back to life. I don't know. Can't confirm that. That's the possibility. Beloved, this is the mark. Listen, this is the mark of the preaching of the gospel. This is what the gospel does even today. A transformed people whose lives are completely changed. That's what the gospel does. It changes lives. Elijah or John the Baptist would come turning the hearts of the fathers back to the children, the disobedient to an attitude of righteousness so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This is what the gospel does. It transforms lives. It changes families. It reconciles families that are broken. The gospel brings back relationships that have been torn apart. People are made ready to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. Luke says, John will be great in the sight of the Lord. He'd be separated unto God. He'd be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. He'd preach the gospel of God to a people so that they would be prepared to believe God. What a ministry. What a ministry. Now, picture old Zacharias. I don't know how old, maybe 60, 70, 80 years old going about his duty in the temple. By all human standards, as a priest, this is a monumental day, a day that will be unlike any other day because he's now offering this 
incense offering in the temple chosen by lot something that didn't happen not every priest got to do that even in their lifetime he's chosen to bring this to the altar he's in the very serious moment moment of his life he's praying for the people of god as he's offering this incense which is a symbol of their prayers going up to god and an angel speaks to him it promises a son whose name speaks of the favor of God. That's what John's name means. The favor of God. And he tells him of his son's character to be and the practice of his life to come. And Zacharias does what all of us would do. He does exactly what we would do. What we even do now. Sometimes we hear God's word When God speaks about what seems impossible, we do just what Zacharias would do. You know what he does? I'm not going to tell you. You have to come back. Every good message has a cliffhanger. Sure, you can read about it. Maybe you will. I hope you do. Let's pray together. Father, what a great time we've had this morning. Lord, I trust this has been all that you would have for us to hear this day as we rejoice in the plan of salvation being revealed, as we thank you for your grace and mercy that you would bring one who would point to Christ. An example to all of us, who have been called by you unto salvation. That is our task. That is our job. Point to you. To help people see and realize their guilt before you, understand their sin, trusting that you would open their eyes that they might embrace you by faith. We know, Lord, not all will. We trust you for those whom you have placed your love upon in a saving way that you would draw them to yourself. And Lord, even if no one ever comes to know the truth of the gospel from our words, we will still believe it and trust it. You're sovereign over all that you have accomplished and all that you will accomplish in time. We praise you for that. So use us just as you have used John. Allow us to be instruments in your hand for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.